thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening. We are continuing our study of the book of Ezekiel, a very short study that is in light of the book of Revelation. We've seen um, in the two past two lectures that the book, of the book of Ezekiel has many of the structures that, are that we are going to see in the book of Revelation. There is essentially a first phase where Ezekiel is announcing to the people of Judea and to the people of Israel the the, the punishment, the uh, chastisement that is coming their way. And then in the next step, there is the vision of the new temple, which we're going to talk about tonight. Before we get into the, the, the new temple, um, a couple of points. We've seen that a number of, uh, a number of uh, tableaux that are going, or icons, that we're going to see in the book of Revelation already present in Ezekiel. First, the appearance of the Lord and the first chapter of Revelation is already in Ezekiel. Those who are going to be marked, those who are, who are going to be signed in the book of Revelation are, are also, that signing is also present in the book of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, the eagle flying in midair, the angels who go and visit the city, the city which is called the harlot, which is in the book of Ezekiel, Jerusalem, the language used, the marital language used to describe the idolatry of Jerusalem, the importance of Jerusalem in God's plan. Um, we also have seen uh, certain very important elements in the book of Revelation, such as the number 666 makes its apparition here, although it's 665 the day before. We've seen Gog and Magog. So many of these elements in the book of Revelation are rooted in Ezekiel. And in the book of Revelation, the last part is the, the unveiling of the new Jerusalem, which in the book of Ezekiel, we have the unveiling of the new temple. We're going to spend some time looking at this today. Before we do so, I'd like to um, emphasize the point I made last time, but I made it very quickly. And that is, prophecies don't always come verbally. Many of the things that the Lord asked Ezekiel to do did not involve words but involved actions or behavior. And we need to be aware of this, lest we constrain the Lord in the conversation He has with us to the verbal mode only. So that, for instance, when we sit down and we pray to God and we're waiting for an answer, we may be tempted to assume that when God will answer us, it will be vocally, it will be verbally. But it doesn't have to be like that. 
And that's very important for us because otherwise we're not really in tune with the way God speaks to us. Most of the time he will not use words. In fact, very, very rarely will he use words. Examples of, of these can be found chapter 3, verse 22 through 27. Ezekiel is commanded by the Lord to go into his house and cords will be placed on him so that he's unable to move and his tongue will cleave to his mouth so he can't speak, he's dumb. That is given as a sign. Do you understand? In this specific instance, God is not speaking using words. Ezekiel doesn't go out and says, Thus says the Lord. Cords are placed on him and he's dumb. And he becomes a sign. He is a sign. Not his words, not what he says, but his person is a sign. Okay? Now we'll, we'll, we'll go back and, and try to understand why in a minute, but I want to show you the different places where this appears, because it isn't once. And God says, this is going to be a sign to Jerusalem that the city is under siege. In 4.7-4.17, we have Ezekiel who will set his face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm, with his arms barred, and he will prophesy against the city. And again, the Lord will put cords upon Ezekiel so he can't turn from one side to the other until he had completed the days of his siege. In chapter 5, Ezekiel is commanded to take a sharp sword and to use it to cut his beard and his hair and to make uh, three piles one is to be sprinkled, one is to be burned by fire and the third is to be um, one is to be stricken by sword, one is to be burned and one is to be scattered to the wind again using physical elements God is prophesying through Ezekiel what is to befall of the people of Jerusalem. The hair represents the people. A third will die in fire, a third will die by sword, and a third will be scattered. Now is it that exactly a third and a third and a third? No. But the notion of a third and a third and a third is a repetition. Right? What, do we, what have we said about number three? It's repeating something three times. Right? So it is going to happen. There is no if, there is no but. Jerusalem will fall under siege and these things will happen now. Fire, sword, and being scattered are all part of those curses that we've read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So we shouldn't take them in a scientific analytical approach. It's going to be just by fire, or just by sword, or just by scattering. Well that means no one can die by famine, or no one can die of a disease, but that's not true. Those three are used to pull with them the entire covenantal curses. And the fact that they're broken in three are indicating the finality, the completeness of those curses that will be triggered. We're going to see that three reoccur in the book of Revelation. And again, we're going to wonder, well, why three? How, what does that mean? Well, that's what it means. You just don't focus on those three elements. You understand it to mean as the tip of the iceberg that is being pulled. The tip of the covenantal curses iceberg being completely brought into, into the picture. You understand? 
Don't give it too much of a rational, scientific reading. Otherwise, you're going to be scratching your head trying to understand the, you know, the technical aspects of it, which is not what is being what, which is not what is meant here. There's, I think, one more sign that I'd like to to look at. Yes, this one is very, very powerful, and again, it teaches us something about God's pedagogy, and something which we are not ready to accept. Most of us are not ready to accept this lesson. Here it is. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 15 through 27. The Lord comes to Ezekiel and tells him that he will be taking away his wife. But Ezekiel is not to mourn. He cannot mourn his wife. Let's read it in context. Turn to chapter 24, 15 through 27. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is actually 24. Sorry, I was at 15. I don't know why I stopped it. Yeah, 24. Also the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. The delight of your eyes. Ezekiel loves his wife. You understand? God is not delivering him from his wife. Let's get that one clear. Alright? Ezekiel loves his wife. She is the delight of his eyes. I came, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. We, we are called as Christians to cultivate the habit of holy indifference. It's an absolute necessity in the Christian life. Holy indifference is an absolute necessity to live truly a Christian life. See, I don't know who had that image. Maybe it's Bishop Sheen, but I don't remember exactly. But somebody said that most Christians are stuck in the revolving door of the church. They come in and they go out, and they come in and they go out, and they come in and they go out. Sort of where one foot in and one foot out. And we have these list of conditions with God. I'll go to the church, and I will pray, and I will do this, and I will do that, if, if you keep my health, if you keep the ones I love, if we live in peace, if this, if that, and most of those ifs are silent. They're like little monsters lurking, lurking in the recesses of our souls, sitting in the dark, not discovered by us, waiting for the moment to jump and attack us. If the Lord loves you, how come he did this to you? If he truly loved you, he would not have done this. You deserve more. You deserve better. What kind of God would do this to you? And then we revert to paganism. Why? Because we do not actively, forcefully, cultivate the habit of holy indifference. What is holy indifference? 
holy indifference is this habit that says all is the Lord the Lord has given the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord that is not a natural habit that is not something we do naturally we require the supernatural graces of faith, hope and charity for us to be able to speak this way but we have to practice it in, in those little things we do we have to practice it and God gives us so many occasions to practice it but most of the time we ignore them example you haven't had to have lunch you haven't had time to have lunch today the weather is too hot too humid too cold you're tired you're itching you haven't had time to shower somebody at work is bothering you he speaks too much he doesn't speak enough all those daily occasions are God's words of love for us to practice holy indifference no matter where I'm put no matter what I'm doing everything God's will for me today right now this moment Ezekiel would not have been able to do as he was commanded if that man did not have an interior life where he was practicing this he would have rebelled what did I do to you to take my wife as a sign to these bozos you said yourself they don't listen they're hardened of heart they don't care they're evil you take my wife to give them a sign hello don't read this and then kind of yawn and keep on going put yourself in his shoes literally how would you react how would you react he's not taking his wife so that they may be saved he's not taking his wife so that Jerusalem may be saved he's not taking his wife so that something positive come out none of that you understand think about that meditate on this I cannot stress the importance of this for your own spiritual well-being for our spiritual well-being all right now I want to switch over and talk about something different before I talk about the temple in Ezekiel there is a perfect example of the mixing of the senses of spiritual of the spiritual senses and you will see when I read this passage that Ezekiel doesn't say alright now I am using the literal sense and then he will put another sentence that says and now I'm switching senses he's not gonna do that now listen and tell me if you notice the switch turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 um, there is a whole section that I pretty much omitted because I don't have time which deals with all these prophecies against all the powers that either were set against Jerusalem or that even boasted when Jerusalem was destroyed one of these were was Tyre the city of Tyre and the other one is the city of Sidon now I want to point something out to, to, that, that may not be intuitive in this audience there may be people for whom Tyre and Sidon are just these ancient things that existed way in the past and we looked at them kind of historically but in this audience there may be people from Tyre or from Sidon anybody from Tyre or Sidon here 
imagine reading scripture where the city where you come from is cursed. Right? I mean, nowhere in the, in the scripture you would see something about San Diego or Los Angeles or New York or right. So you know, being born here in America, you gotta have a disjointed relationship with scripture, right? But if you're from Iraq, let's say, and you hear the way the Assyrians are being described, and you're little, you grew up, and you've been taught how wonderful the Assyrians were. Or, if you're from Sidon or Tyre, and you hear the way it's described, holy indifference is better kick in. Because you have to choose your camp. You have to understand where truth lies. It's right here. You can't choose Tyre and Sidon over Scripture. You can't do that. Alright. Chapter 28, there is this lamentation over Tyre. Here we are. I'm going to start with verse, the first verse, and then I'll point out where, where, uh, where things get really interesting. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and not God, though you consider yourself as wise as a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel, no secret is hidden from you, but your wisdom and your understanding you have gotten wealth for yourself. By your wisdom and understanding you have gotten wealth for yourself, and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you consider yourself as wise as a God, therefore behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom, and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain, in the heart of the seas. And it keeps on going, and then... Verse 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, topaz, and jasper, chrysolite, beryl, and onyx, sapphire, carbuncle, and emerald, and wrote in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. With an anointed garden cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And the garden cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? No, not Jerusalem. He's talking about the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was never in Eden. The king, and why does he say from the time you were created, not born? It's Lucifer. See how he switched from the actual human ruler of the city of Tyre to the actual spiritual ruler of the city of Tyre Lucifer himself and he doesn't tell you I'm switching and he has no problem commingling the two senses none whatsoever and neither did the, the, the apostles neither did Christ they could switch from one sense to the other very easily 
that were not hampered by our Cartesian, literal, sequential approach. In fact, Semitic languages, anyone who studies Semitic languages will see that by their very nature, a Semitic language is not very well suited for scientific analysis. It's cumbersome, but it's very well suited for hyperbola, for description, for comparative analysis. This is like that. It's no wonder that St. Ephraim wrote his theology in poetry. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote his theology in prose. There's a reason for that. We have to train our mind to think this way. And understand that scriptures work this way. All four senses can be commingled very easily because as you are used to the four senses, you can switch from one to the other and come back and you don't lose your audience. But we get lost. Because, it, because we tend to apply to scripture the patterns of reading that we've learned in school, which are non-scriptural. Alright? The other important thing is, as we said earlier, everything that happened in the physical realm happens in the spiritual realm. There is a tie-in between physical manifestation of good and evil and spiritual manifestation of good and evil. The war on earth between good and evil is tied to a war in the heavens between the angels and the demons. Though they do not fight directly, they fight through us, but they are engaged in this battle. They're completely engaged in this battle. That's why it's very important for us to understand what St. Peter told us when he said, the devil is like a lion prowling about, seeking one whom he may devour. The devil is engaged in this battle right now, this very minute. But so are the angels, and there are more of these than of those. And if you're not in the habit of, if you are not cultivating a very deep devotion to your garden angel, you're going to battle on your own. Not very smart. I won't recommend it. Cultivate a very deep devotion to your angel, to your garden angel. He's much smarter than you are. I told you this before. If you were to give the rules of the axioms of geometry to an angel, any angel, good or bad, demon or angelic, it doesn't matter. As soon as they see those rules, those rules of geometry, you know, two parallel lines never intersect. Well, that's true in planar geometry, not in spherical, but be it as it may. All right, all right. I'm not going to put my mathematical hat here, although I'm always tempted to do so. Um, you know, two lines intersect only in one point. Those rules, right? If you study geometry, if you remember your geometry, you give you those rules, and then you have to now start deriving certain truths. The sum of three angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. Well, then, if I gave you two, you know, 30 and 60, well, you know you have a, right? And it takes some, what do you do? You sit down and you analyze, you rationalize, you work through it, right? Step by step. That's how we work. You give those rules to an angel or a demon, the minute they cast their eyes on the rules, the instant they see them, all possible mathematical truths that could be derived from those rules are known to them. In that instant, in that instant. Do you understand? I mean, try to conceive of an intellect, of an intelligence that comprehends things intuitively. You know the rules of biology, the DNA? 
Okay, you give a DNA sequence to an angel, he's got it. Everything about it. The whole thing. The instant they see it, they know it all. They know our biological makeup. This is what angels are able to do. And there is one of them who is stuck. Well, this is how I feel sometimes. With us, let's say God makes you the human guardian, the guardian in human to an ant. For as long as this ant lives, you are walking next to it. And guess what? You see the entire plane. You see where the food is, where everything that would benefit this ant. What is the ant doing? It's ignoring you. It thinks it knows better. So it goes in circles. And you're standing right next to it. And you can guide it to the best possible food. And it's going in circles. That's how we behave to our guardian angel. We don't think, well, you know what? One day I, may be, I might want to get married. Or I may become a priest. I don't know. Let me go in circles for some time. I'm going to explore my own. He's right there, stuck with you. And not once do you turn around and say, well, what do you think? Should I get married? Should I become a priest? What do you think? Well, you know, he's only eternal. He's probably been existing for about, oh, well, you know, 2 billion years, maybe 11 billion years before this universe existed. He'd seen the whole human race from Adam all the way to now. You think he might know one thing or two about marital relationships? <laughs> but no, we much, we much rather go in circles and discover on our own. Now, I don't know why I went there, but I went there. So, if you have not started having a really true, de true devotion to an angel, begin now. It's not too late. That's, the, that's what really, that's why I say get stuck. I, you know, the more I think about it, I'm kind of embarrassed. Because he's stuck with me. And, and it really humbles me to think that such a huge and awesome being is stuck with me. And he doesn't complain. He doesn't go to God and says, that's it, I've had it. You gave me a mule, and it's a deaf mule on top of it. He doesn't hear a thing I say, and he's just standing by a wall, banging his head against it, thinking he can go through. I've had it, I quit. He doesn't do that. But some people say, well, would the guardian angel be a guardian angel only once? I hope so. But seriously though, it kind of gives you a glimpse in the ardent and burning charity that angels have for us. The deep-seated love they have for us, for them to be willing to put up with us. And if nothing else, the more you have a devotion to your God and angel, the more you are willing to put up with your fellow human being. Because if this, this, this incredible being is putting up with me, who am I not putting up with a little bit of inconvenience? from a brother or a sister. Alright. Let's now turn to chapter 40. The vision of the temple. So the city has been conquered. The city has been destroyed. And it's been a while. It's been 14 years since the destruction of the city. That vision doesn't come up right away. Right? It took 14 years for God to come back. 
and talk to Ezekiel about that vision, about the city. The Lord was upon me, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me in the visions of God into the land of Israel and set me down upon a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city opposite me. We will see this very high mountain again recurring in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that. Keep, keep that in mind. It's the notion that the very high mountain is the throne of God. It's the idea that God is the Lord of the universe because it is the high mountain. It's where he reigns. And opposite of me was a city, meaning that the city is also on a very high mountain and therefore it's coming from above. Alright? When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your mind upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show, show it to you. Declare all what you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long, six long cubits each, each being a cubit and a hand breadth in length. I'm not going to spend time on measurements, we're going to deal with measurements when we hit the New Jerusalem because it is important there. Suffice it to say that in the case of the New Jerusalem, if you look at the measurement of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, it's basically, I think, I don't recall exactly, but it's like 30 miles long, or no, not even that. It is hundreds of miles long and hundreds of miles wide. It's huge. And, and if you take a literal interpretation, you're going to be hard-pressed to put that city anywhere in Israel. In fact, it's so big, it's bigger than present-time Israel. So clearly the indication is not for us to take it literally or literalistically that this is what it's going to be like. It's just that it's very big. All right. So the interesting thing, though, that is first... First, he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep, and the side rooms, one reed long, and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate, by the vestibule of the gate, at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gate, eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits, and the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end, and there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate. The three were on the same size, and the jams on either side were the same size. So the interesting thing to us right now, without going through the details, is that he is giving him what? What is God showing him? What would you call that today? An architectural plan. He's giving him the architecture of the temple. You understand? Hmm. Why is God interested in giving us an architecture? And by the way, this is not the first time it happens. Remember, recall Moses when he went up the mountain. What did God tell him? You are to build it according to the design that I will show you. So there is a heavenly architecture. Do you understand? There is a heavenly architecture. Why is there a heavenly architecture? I mean, after all, I, I, you know, you, you read scripture from one end to the other, you won't find that there is a heavenly, heavenly electrical engineering. 
or heavenly plumbing, for that matter. Why architecture? Let me ask you a second question. If God gives Ezekiel an architecture for the temple, which we know the temple prefigures the church, okay? Do you think that God is interested in the architecture of our churches? Now, we don't know exactly why yet, but if there is a plan and there is a bunch of chapters where God goes in very, very, in, in great details describing how the temple works. Do you think he's interested by the architecture of our churches? So now let me phrase my question this way to you. Do you think that we have complete freedom to decide on the architecture of the church? Do you think that the church in, its, in, her, in, in the structure, in this building, is important? We're going to see a lot more of that in the book of Revelation. A lot more. But right now, verse 17, brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement round about the court. And then he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, a hundred cubits. So there's a series of measurements that happen here, and then it's an ancient measurement that is related to a meter, but I don't remember exactly what is the relationship. It's somewhere, and I have to, I'll, I'll pull all that data when we get to in 17, so that's uh, less than a meter. One and a half foot, so it's less than a meter, maybe half a meter. But be it as it may, let's not get into this right now. The measurements are important, don't get me wrong, but I don't have time to to stop and look at the measurements and their meaning. We're going to do that in the book of Revelation, talking about the New Jerusalem. Be it as it may, the one thing I want to point out right now, in chapter 42, verse 1 through 20, the Lord says, verse 13, And he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the cereal offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying their, there the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. So, in that architecture of the temple, the Lord is specifying that the garments of the priests are holy. The priests will put them on when he approaches the Holy of Holies, and then before he leaves it, he leaves them there. Okay? So we've seen, the first thing is that God is interested in the architecture. God is keenly interested in the clothes of the priest. Alright? Keep that in mind. We're going to come back and try to understand why he's doing this. Then chapter 43, 1-17. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the dead bodies of their kings, by setting their threshold by my thresh threshold and their doors 
doorposts po beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defied my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their idolatry and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. And then he says, and you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple and its appearance and plan that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, portray the temple, the arrangement, its exits and its entrances and its whole form, and make known to them all its ordinances and all its laws, and write it down in their sight so that they may observe and perform all its laws and all its ordinances. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory round about upon the top of the mountain shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. What is he saying? What is the condition that Ezekiel, what is the important condition that will cause Ezekiel to reveal to the Jews the architecture he saw? They have to be ashamed of their sins. They have to be ashamed of their sins. You understand? Here's a really interesting correlation. The architecture of our churches the architecture of our churches is directly related to the purity and holiness of the people. You won't get a church that is built the way it's supposed to be built when the people are not holy, because it's going to be hidden from them. Now I recommend you go and visit churches that have been recently built in San Diego. I'm not going to comment on those churches, but I think you will get my just by visiting them. The church, the architecture, is what? It is theology in stones. It reveals the truth of heaven to us in stones. That is its purpose. So for instance, the vestibule that you see out there represents what? What is its purpose? Why do we have doors, then a vestibule, and then another set of doors? Why don't we just have doors directly that gives on the outside? What is its purpose? It, yeah, to prepare yourself, yes. You can, you can look at it as a, an area where you can prepare yourself to enter the church. That is a very worthy use of that space, but it's not the primary use. Its primary use is for the Gentiles. Alright? The Gentiles. Those who do not belong to the church. You understand? In particular, which Gentiles can you think of should essentially be baptized out there? Our kids. That's why the baptismal font should be in the vestibule, not inside the church. The baptismal font is at the entrance. It's in the vestibule because this is where you become grafted to the people of God. This is where you are turned into a Christian. When we put it inside the church, we blur, we blur the difference. And we condition ourselves into thinking that this space is just for about everybody. That's not true. That is not true. We enter the church and we are essentially in the presence of God, right? And then there is the Dima, or the sanctuary. The area behind me. What is that area for? This is the area that is set aside for the celebration of the liturgy. So who should be there? And those who are consecrated. 
and they should wear different sets of clothing because they are representing what to us? They're representing heaven. You understand? Now, do you think that during the liturgy, when people are up there, should they be coming down? Does it make sense for them to come down? No. It doesn't. Does it make sense for us to go up? No. No. Now, let me be very clear. Is it that God is requiring this from us so that uh, He's going to sit up keeping tab? No. What did I say? Architecture is theology in stones. It is pedagogy. It is teaching us about heaven. It is making us understand God's plan of salvation. It is for our teaching, for our formation, for us to understand. We'll talk, there's a lot more to it in the book of Revelation. But I want you to understand that the structure of a church says a lot about the theology of those who built it. And it conditions, whether you like it or not, when you take your children to a church that has a specific architecture, you're conditioning them, you're teaching them, you're ingraining in their mind a certain representation of God and of heaven. So for instance, a church like this one is focused on what exactly? What do you think the point of focus is with a church like this one? The people. You sit here, you see people. You sit here, you see people. You see each other. So what happens to people who see people? They get distracted. They're looking at people. Oh, so-and-so didn't do his hair, and so-and-so hasn't shaved, and so-and-so is this and that and the other. Right? It is focused on us. This is an amphitheater. God never said build an amphitheater, because he knows us. It isn't that there's something intrinsically evil in an amphitheater. There isn't, but it doesn't teach us the truth of heaven. Let's move on. Verse 44, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east. And it was shut. And he said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened. And no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out of the same way. I don't have to tell you how much the fathers of the church have seen in this gate of the east Our Lady. And, and the, um, the virginal conception of Our Lord. Okay? That's one of the spiritual reading that we see. But I hope that you're getting a glimpse, I don't have time to really spend over this, that the architecture of the church is theology in stones. And it has to be structured so that it helps people focus on heaven and teach them good theology. There are two things that are very important in every church. The most important things. Number one, music. Number two, the architecture. And when I say music, I don't mean lyrics, I mean the music, the beat. I don't have time right now to talk a lot about music, but I'll tell you right away that if you are listening to rock and roll, and if you're listening to jazz, good luck with your prayer life. I wish you good luck. You'd be like people who are trying to go on diet and every night eat a gallon of, gla of, of ice cream. I'm dieting all day long, I'm exercising, go back and I'm eating a gallon of ice cream. Doesn't work. 
You're really serious about your prayer life? Shut it down. Completely. It's just a suggestion. You can try the other way. Music, the music is essential and then the architecture. Those two things is what we can condition us to focus and help us understand what the liturgy is all about. I'll, I'll take questions after. I don't, wanna, I don't have time because I want to I focus on one more very important point. Then he brought me back, chapter 47, to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Okay? In God's plan, the temple faced east. So if we had a choice, if we could choose how the church faces, which way you think it should be facing? East. If we can. Sometimes we can't. God understands. But if we could, we should face east. Right? And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And the water was coming out on the south side. Going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was up to the loins. Again he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through and he said to me, son of man have you seen this? Stop right there and tell me what's wrong with this picture. It is so obvious that we usually don't think about it. But it is something that is fundamentally, physically wrong. Pardon? There's a lake in the church. Mm, I don't know about that. Let's run the movie in your head. He goes to the gate of the east. And what does he see coming out of the gate of the east? Water. It's seeping through. Then he moves a thousand cubit away, and it's ankle deep. No, 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 just don't, don't, don't try to come up with interpretation. Just follow the physical flow. There is more water. Where's that water coming from? Well, normally a river, a river, when it becomes a river, it is because you have multiple sources joining together to form a river. Or it is because it's flowing faster at the source, and slower, but we're talking a thousand cubit, which is what we said a cubit was? 20.4 inches. 20.4 inches. 20.4 inches. That's what, what is that? That's, uh, that's a foot, right? Uh, two feet. Two feet. Yeah, I, I, I grew up with the metric system. I'm sorry. I just get confused with, this, with the feet and inches and all that wonderful stuff. Half a mile. So two miles from the source, two miles from the source, it's a river so deep he can't cross. All right. Go check rivers. Find me a river that two miles away is so deep you can't cross at the source. Coming from the threshold of the temple, a little trickle. I'm not talking that the source is a huge lake. You see what's wrong? So let me ask you this question. This water flowing through, the water flowing through is 
the grace of God. That's what it represents because it brings forth life. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So, if you were to stand by the river, which is kind of two miles away from the temple, and you see all that water, hmm? and then you went back to the temple, and you got inside the temple, and you looked in the temple. Would you see any water? Remember, it's, it's flowing from under, right? Would you see any water inside? Huh. Two miles away, there's lots of it. In the temple, there's none. Which place is more graced? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The, temp the water is the grace of God. Two miles away from the temple, it's a huge river. So let's assume you don't know where the source is. I just take you there, teleport you there, bam! You look at it, whoa, it's a huge river. Then I blindfold you and teleport you inside the temple. And you look around and it's dry. Which place is more graced? No, no, no. You're, you're being too smart for me. Just based on the facts I gave you, which place is more graced? Right, outside. Outside. Okay. See, we got it in reverse. We think, we think, the closer we get to the church, the more graces we should see. When I come into the church, I should see holy people. They're in the church. How come outside over there you see all these people who are so wonderful and doing these wonderful things and this and that and the other, and you come to the church and, you know, those Catholics, they don't even know their Bible. They sit in Mass and you see them bored and they're not interested. So, of course, it's over there. Where's the source? Here. Remember when I told you multiple times, the way the church goes, so goes the world. Don't try to fix the world, fix the church. Everything else takes care of itself. Here it is. It's a paradox. We have so many of them in scripture. It's a paradox. The source of all graces is right here. But its manifestation, its fruits are not here. They're out there. Because God, Christ, came to save the world. He empties himself for the world. Not so it stays right here over the altar, makes a big pool. You understand? Don't come to the church hoping to see only holiness. It was never God's plan. Not here, not on earth. Never. You'll see lots and lots and lots of sinners. Lots of them. Don't be shocked. And don't be shocked if you see holiness out there in the world. Rejoice and know the source. It's right here, behind me. That's the source. It's not visible here. It's visible out there. Because out there is what it's needed. Because hopefully somebody will taste that water and he will go, yum, that's good. And he'll follow the water back to its source. To the temple. And when he gets into the temple, the physical manifestation of the water is not to be seen. What is there? It looks like there is only a box. And so it is in your prayer life. Don't pray expecting candy. 
Don't pray hoping that when you pray, God gives you candy. The flow of graces that will come from your prayer life will not be manifested most often than not during your prayer life, during the time you pray. Water is not there. Most of the time it's very dry. You're trying to pray, you're sitting there and your mind is going all over the place. 400 ideas come crashing in your brain and a bunch of other things hit you from all sides and you wonder, I'm wasting my time, why am I sitting here trying to pray? Because you expected, here God, I came, I'm going to sit, I'm going to pray, so that God will do something amazing. Amazing to what? To our senses. Meaning what? He'll open the floodgate of heaven and He will drown us with His grace. And I'll feel so great, it'll be an amazing experience, and I'll just be pumped up and I'll go and I'll convert the world. Uh-uh. Doesn't work this way. Doesn't work this way. Prayer is like oxygen. You breathe, not for the purpose of breathing. Keep this idea, this image in your mind. The flow of graces come from under the church. It's not visible and it waters the world. And if the church is not holy, the water dries. And when the water dries, there's nothing to water the world. Nothing. And that's why I tell you, our biggest problem in this century, the root cause of all our problems, all of them, wars, destruction of the family, the instability we have, the anxiety we have, they can be all traced back to this one momentous event when Catholics started to contracept. That's where it goes back to. And that's what we need to solve. That's what we have to focus on. Without neglecting all the other things we have to do. But we've got to understand that we have to pray for the end, not just of abortion, of contraception, which is the root cause of all these evils in the church. That's what's choking the flow of grace in the world. And the world becomes more and more disordered. And it's reflected in the way we live, in our architecture, in the focus, in our dress, in the dress code we have. Um, it was really amazing to me that I was looking at pictures of Paris and pictures of Paris taken in the 50s or 60s. There's one picture taken in the 60s. There's a door. It's black and white. And you see a lady standing in the door. And her profession is not um, dignified. Alright? Her profession is not a profession suitable for a, a woman. You know what was shocking to me? Her dress code was more modest than the dress code I see today among women. That shocked me. She would pass for a modest woman compared to most of the, the, the dress code that I see today. That's what God sees in His church, among His children. And He will fix it. And there's going to be two ways in which He fixes it. Way number one, we fix it. That's the easy way. Way number two, He fixes it. We've got the pattern here. And in the book of Revelation. The choice is ours. And as I said last time, pray that in your own parish, in your parish, Pray ardently, offer sacrifices, fast, and offer sacrifices that God, by His grace, will not allow one 
one unholy communion. Meaning that no one in the state of mortal sin will go and receive the Lord. Pray for this grace. And you will see how your parish will flourish. The book of Ezekiel is a prefiguration to the book of Revelation. The one fundamental difference, I'm going to end up on this, on this note, is that in the book of Ezekiel, we see the new temple coming down. In the book of, 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 of the Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down, there's really something very shocking. There's no temple. There's no temple. Because the Lord is the temple. And that's going to be a fundamental difference between the two, which we're going to see uh, when we study the book of Revelation. I'm hoping that by now you're starting to get a... You're getting the form of the book of Revelation right. I'm hoping that by now your initial thoughts about what the book should be and what we should be focusing on have now changed. And you're, trying, you're, you're, you're starting to see the riches which are built into this book, which, goes, which go far beyond questions as what's going to happen at the end of the time. Which may be important questions, but relatively important, because most of us will probably die before the end of time. So, in approaching this book, it is very important that we keep in mind, without prayer, and without a conscientious effort to purify our lives, it's very difficult for us to understand it. And so we have to strive to pray constantly as we read it so that God reveals to us what He wishes to reveal to us. And I hope that in your own lives you've taken prayer, your personal prayer, very seriously and you've set time aside for the Lord. For without this, you, your heart will never be at peace. And that's the words of St. Augustine. Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.